congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, the dying Jacob blessed the sons of, of Joseph. That's our theme from, for this afternoon, and even the words of this theme you may recognize as being taken from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, which says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. We're going to consider this verse in the light of the details recorded here for us in Genesis chapter 48. It's truly a remarkable reference that the Holy Spirit led the author of Hebrews to make in this connection. Because of all the things in Jacob's very eventful life that could have been cited as examples of his faith, He singles out this matter of him blessing the sons of Joseph as that which really puts him in in this hall of faith, if you will. And that makes very clear to us that this account that we're given in Genesis 48 is not uh, simply a, a touching story about an affectionate grandfather and his interest in his uh, teenage grandsons. It's not simply a matter of him uh, wishing them well or, or even praying for them, things which are valuable of themselves. But, but that's not what this passage in Genesis 48 is about. But rather, Jacob here at the end of his life, in a most notable way, appears as a great witness. He is among those cloud, that cloud of witnesses that uh, Hebrews speaks about, who gave testimony to the faithfulness of God. And Jacob indeed appears here as uh, having a steadfast faith in God, as one who believes in the promises of salvation, as one who believes in the promise of eternal life, and as one who acts in submission to God and in faith as he blesses the sons of Joseph. His blessings are not mere prayers. They are prophetic announcements, which he makes as the mouthpiece of God, in the name of God, according to a special position that he occupied by by God's appointment. And they are pronounced in faith. And that faith that he exhibited here truly is a witness and an inspiration to the faith of God's elect down through the ages. And we know from Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 that that is why he is included among uh, these witnesses of faith. They surround us and they encourage and inspire us in our Christian race to run this race with endurance, being encouraged by the examples of the saints before as we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So we can expect to see great meaning and value in this account uh, before us in the Word of God, which we're considering this afternoon then. By faith, the dying Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph. And notice, notice, first of all, that he blessed them as sons of Israel. That is, he blessed them as his own sons. He blessed them as those who would be heads of their own tribes. Now we can see in this passage that, that Joseph himself... And we may add, 
his own sons, who would be in their late teens at this point, uh, they showed priorities that they didn't learn in the land of Egypt. They showed values that they didn't learn in this, this pagan world in which they grew up. We do not know what previous arrangements were made, but we're told that when Joseph was informed that Jacob was dying, he immediately took these boys and he went to visit his father on his deathbed. And so those, those sons who had never lived outside the world of Egypt, who had been raised in Egypt, who had never been to the land of Canaan, very likely, they did not in fact belong to Egypt. But God, in his grace, uh, claimed them for his own. And that appears in a wonderful way in Jacob's claim upon them as his own. After rehearsing God's promises to him in verses 3 and 4, Jacob says to Joseph, Now then, your two sons, born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. He's claiming them. He's giving them the same status as sons which his firstborn sons by Leah have, Reuben and Simeon. They were his firstborn sons through Leah. And he's not referring to Ephraim and Manasseh as replacements for them, but he's placing them in the same position as these sons. In effect, he's adopting them as his own. In verse 6, he goes on to say, Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. You have other children, they're yours, but these two are mine. And your other children will be named under uh, these first two, which will be heads of their own tribes, in effect. And that's why as you uh, read through the Bible, you don't find a specific tribe of Joseph, but what you find are the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh included among the other tribes named after the sons of Jacob. It's really quite an amazing thing when you consider it. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 3, which describes God as one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's how God wants to know him and believe in him, as one who is rich with surprises, surprises concerning the greatness of his ways with his people, the amazing grace the wonderful manner in which he answers prayer far beyond our expectation. That's how God wants us to know him. That's what Jacob learned of God. In verse 11, we hear Jacob, the man, the grateful believer, amazed at the goodness of God when he says, I hadn't expected to see your face again. And now God has shown me your son's. And all those years of sadness and sorrow where he thought that his beloved son was gone forever. 
We find many expressions of, of despair and darkness. But God showed his wonderful ways to Jacob. Instead of losing a beloved son, he gained two more sons. Those sons of Joseph that were blessed here as his own. So Jacob blesses the sons of Jacob as sons of Israel and heads of their own tribes. And he blesses them with a double blessing of Joseph's birthright. There is a kind of formalized rule of the birthright given to us in the law, and I'm referring here particularly to to Deuteronomy 21, a passage that that regulates this this evil of polygamy. Yes, there was polygamy practiced in the Old Testament, but it was never according to God's good will as originally revealed, and God did regulate it in the law. And one of the ways he regulated it is that he forbade a husband to give the rights of the firstborn to the firstborn son of the wife that he loved the most, even if he wasn't the firstborn son, actually. And the Lord uh, regulates this very explicitly where he says, He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. It's a helpful passage because it also describes what is involved in this this birthright. It involves a double portion, a double uh, inheritance, if you will, twice as much as the other sons. And along with that double portion uh, was a kind of supremacy over the other brothers that was given uh, by right of being the firstborn. You hear that in uh, Isaac's blessing of, of Jacob when he says, I have, uh, uh, he, so, he told Esau, I have made him master over you. And even in chapter 48, it's, it's clear that Ephraim, uh, in a very surprising way, is placed over Manasseh. So Joseph was given a double portion The birthright was Joseph's. But this is an exception, isn't it, to the rule? Because Joseph wasn't the firstborn. In fact, in 1 Chronicles, we we, uh, read of of that difference that was made. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, in this section of the book where we have all these genealogical records and the names of the children of of, uh, Old Testament people, It says, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. This is an interesting passage because it it describes those two aspects that belong to the rights of the firstborn. On the one hand, there is the double portion. And on the other hand, there is the the supremacy, if you will, that belongs ordinarily to the firstborn. Now, it didn't go to Reuben because he had committed sexual immorality. And there's a stigma that remains upon his name, and that was passed on in terms of the inheritance rights. But the firstborn privilege was divided up among these other sons. 
Joseph received the double portion, and to Judah the place of supremacy was given. And we know that from Judah the ruler came. Not only King David, but the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a helpful passage to enable us to appreciate the the nature of these rights that ordinarily were given to the firstborn. Joseph received the double portion. In verse 15, it says that he blessed Joseph, saying, God blessed the lads. Uses the same language that Chronicles uses. The blessing was given to Joseph, specifically, particularly, those sons of Joseph. They received his double portion. And that portion was not limited to material blessings. Let my name be named upon them, Jacob says, and the name of Abraham and Isaac. Let them be called after the names of those who are specially called by God, chosen by him to be his people. A promise of rich spiritual blessing as well as a promise of the multiplication of their descendants. That also is made specific in the blessing that Jacob pronounces upon these sons. We read of it there in verse 16. May they increase greatly upon the earth. These double blessings are given to Joseph, to his sons together, as sharing these riches of distinguishing grace and bounty. But there's another surprise uh, to this blessing that Joseph or Jacob gives to these sons. They're blessed as sons of Israel. They're blessed with the double portion of Joseph's birthright. But thirdly, they're blessed with a surprising preference of Ephraim over Manasseh. It's hard to miss the parallels and the contrast between this scene before us in Genesis 48 and the account of Jacob and Esau before Isaac so many years ago. There also was a blind old man. On that occasion, it was Isaac, whose eyes were so dim that he couldn't see well. There also we have the inquiry, who are you? Who are these? Before the blessing is is, uh, pronounced, the blesser wants to ensure that they're given to the proper recipients. And there also, the elder was placed below the younger. There also, the firstborn was replaced by the secondborn. But there's a difference as well, isn't there? Because on that occasion, it was by deceit that the word of God was fulfilled. Yes, it was the word of God that said that the the elder shall serve the younger. Even before the boys were born, it was said of Jacob. Jacob have I loved. But that blessing was actually given in the context of deception. There was Rebekah's deception which Jacob went along with 
fooling their blind father. But on this occasion before us, there's nothing underhanded or treacherous. Either in the behavior of Jacob himself, who, who blesses, or with regard to Joseph, who sought the blessing for his sons. No, Joseph only assumed what was normal. Joseph only assumed what was, uh, what was natural, what was the ordinary thing when he presented his boys to Jacob. With the firstborn in his left hand, his left side, and the secondborn in his right. Facing Jacob then with Manasseh on his right, the firstborn, and Ephraim on his left. That would be the right and proper order, ordinarily. But we read in verse 14 that Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, guiding them skillfully, it says in another translation, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. He deliberately, crossing his arms, placed his right hand to give the the blessing of the firstborn to the one who was actually born second. And before Joseph, it appears, had any time to intervene, Jacob pronounced the blessing upon these boys. A rich and and tremendous blessing that is proclaimed upon them. It's a curious question that we might wonder. What was Joseph thinking as he observed his father make this kind of switch? Could he just attribute it to his, uh, his blindness? He couldn't see very well? That would be hard to do. It seems so deliberate, as indeed it was. Perhaps knowing something of, of Jacob's younger years, perhaps knowing something of his reputation, is this, this composed uh, son of Jacob, this orderly man, this ruler in Egypt, wondering if, if, uh, if the old supplanter is up to his old shenanigans, if he's pulling some kind of a trick. We know he was displeased. Not so, my father. He, he literally took his hand as if to remove it and place it where it belongs, on the head of the firstborn. No, Jacob was very deliberate. He made no mistake. I know, my son. I know. He's not rejecting Manasseh. He's not belittling him in any way. He said he too will become a great people. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he. And his descendants will become a group of nations. Yes, Ephraim will be very great. Both of them will be great. In fact, it will become proverbial in Israel. May the Lord bless you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Because they were both richly blessed. But Ephraim more so. You can read something of that rich blessing upon Joseph in, uh, in the next chapter where uh, it is described uh, specifically in detail. We know that uh, in later history, uh, Ephraim became, 
became so great that uh, the northern tribes were, in effect, called after his name. Look at a book like uh, the Prophecy of Hosea, and uh, Israel is referred to synonymously, interchangeably, with Ephraim. Yes, Ephraim was blessed so greatly. By faith, Jacob pronounced a blessing contrary to expectation, contrary to the natural order of things. And you see, brothers and sisters, that's the very point. That's the significance of this account, because it proclaims uh, the sovereign prerogative of God. It proclaims his surprising ways that are often unexpected and contrary to nature. Jacob is led by the Lord to repeat the same lesson that, in effect, was made already many, many times. Not the firstborn Cain, but Abel. No, not not Ishmael, but Isaac. Not Zerah, not the one who first put out his hand when those twins were struggling in the womb of Tamar. In fact, a red cord was tied around his wrist. But, but Perez somehow managed to get by him. Not Esau, the firstborn, but Jacob. And here again, not Manasseh, but Ephraim is placed first. A lesson that is repeated again and again to make known God's ways, God's unlikely ways, you might say. God's sovereign prerogatives in the way he bestows his blessings and shows his grace. Unlikely ways that would explode upon the world, you might say, in time to come, in the birth of the King of Kings and the Messiah from some obscure, unknown virgin that belonged to the house of David, indeed. That great ruler that would grow up in Nazareth and be contemptuously called Jesus of Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? The one who was rejected by the people. The one who suffered, was crucified, endured a criminal's death. Israel seeing nothing in him that they would desire him. But he was raised from the dead, glorified and exalted to be a prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel. God's unlikely, amazing, surprising ways. How surprised our world is going to be when those multitudes of people who have celebrated the birth of Jesus with sentimental associations but without faith and without any spiritual perception of who he is, without no understanding and knowledge of his glory, how surprised they will be when he appears in the clouds of heaven in glory as the judge of the world. God's promises are unfailing They're always fulfilled. And that fulfillment always carries the surprise of the wonder 
of his ways. The wonder of his grace. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is a lesson that we much must each learn. It's a lesson that each one of us has learned, or certainly must learn, and we must learn it very deeply for ourselves, if we ourselves are those humble recipients of saving grace, who are born not of blood, not by the will of man, not of the flesh, but born of God. We are receivers of God's surprising work, his surprising gift, surprising grace. That's how faith receives the gospel. Faith receives the benefits of salvation as a sovereign gift. The promises of God are not rights that we somehow claim with a kind of presumption. Yes, the promises of God are true. And we plead those promises. And we may plead them with expectation. But we don't treat the promises as if they simply describe benefits that we just have coming to us. No, to understand and receive those benefits leaves everyone who knows them for what they are. Singing amazing grace. Believing in distinguishing mercy. Saying, why me? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? Why, among all the people of the world, was I made to hear the gospel? Why, among, among so many people who, who sit in churches and, and hear the message... Why was I truly made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice? They'd rather starve than come. Well, the answer is that it's the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, or else we would have refused to come and perished in our sin. The grace of God is amazing, marvelous, wonderful. God's ways are not our ways. That's part of the lesson that's revealed in this surprise. Ephraim placed before Manasseh. And then finally, Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph as a faithful witness to the God of all blessing. This is a summary point that really again harks back to uh, why Jacob is cited there in Hebrews chapter 11. He is among those who make up this great cloud of witnesses. And he is a faithful witness to the God of all blessing. Faithful, and that he is full of faith indeed. But the focus is not on Jacob. But it's on the content, it's upon the subject of his witness, which is the faithful God. There certainly is a, a touching humanity uh, evident in, in uh, this man Jacob, again at this point, at the end of his life, in his old age, we hear it in the affectionate way that he speaks uh, to Joseph about his sons. I didn't expect to see you. Now I get to see your boys. We hear it in his reminiscence of Rachel. It almost seems uh, beside the point. It almost seems that uh, this painful memory comes over him and he refers to his beloved wife who died just before they entered the land of Ephrath by his side. He buried her there. 
It's as if you can almost hear his voice trailing off as he recalls the pain and then recalls himself to the matter at hand. There is the touching humanity of of the man, the believer, Joseph. But what shines out so brightly and so wonderfully in this account is, is the triumph of faith in a faithful God. He greets Joseph and his sons with this speech about God's appearance to him so long ago at Bethel and how God blessed him when he appeared to him in flight from his murderous brother and gave these tremendous promises that he would multiply him, that he would give him the land. The memory is vivid. The promises live. And they've been confirmed by a life that's been weighted by the proofs of God's almightiness. God Almighty appeared to me. God who is all-sufficient. Or consider the way uh, he actually expresses and speaks these words of blessing upon Joseph's sons with this threefold reference to the name of God. The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The omniscient God before whom they lived, with whom they lived in fellowship. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Literally, the, the God who fed me, but that word fed speaks, to, speaks of shepherding work, providing for, caring for. Jacob was a shepherd. He knew what's involved in looking after sheep. He refers to the Lord as his shepherd. Looked after him all his life. Perhaps there's an allusion to this. It seems likely, even in Isaiah, in the words of the Lord to his people. In verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah chapter uh, 46, where the Lord says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob. All you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. That's the word of the Lord to his people, the sons of Jacob, in language that seems to hark back to the the shepherding care and love of the Lord for Jacob himself. And the angel, the angel, this divine angel, it's not simply a reference to a created being. He's referring to God here also. But God who appeared to him in the form of a man, this divine messenger who appeared to him and who wrestled with him, who appeared as a kinsman, a redeemer who delivered him from all his trouble beautiful prefiguring of the the messenger of the covenant, the divine angel, the Lord Jesus, God with us. That's how Jacob refers to God. This is the God whose blessing he knows and whose blessing he speaks on the church. At the end of his life, in great weakness, he had to... to, uh, Summon his last strength, if you will, in order to sit up on the bed. He's blind, he can hardly see. 
anything in front of him at all. And yet he's strong. He's strong in faith. And he has a spiritual vision that is sharp and clear and and reaches far into the future. I am dying, but the Lord, he told Joseph, is going to bring you to the land of Canaan. And he assures him also of a parcel of land that would belong to him. He's taking for granted that this great ruler of Egypt is not living for Egypt. And the promised possessions of God are of more value to him. Yes, and they came to possess that land, that that very land where the Samaritan woman sat on a well and talked to Jesus in time to come. Jacob is full of faith. Thus he is a faithful witness to the God of all blessing. Hebrews 11.21 says that he blessed the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on his staff. That's a very interesting reference because there's no, there's no uh, reference to that in chapter 48 or in 49. Chapter 47 ends with a reference to Jacob uh, worshiping on his staff after he had spoken to Joseph. No, the writer of the Hebrews didn't make a mistake, but rather it seems that he is taking this reference as if it were kind of a summary of the end of the life of Jacob. The end of his life was characterized by worship. Clinging to the promises of God. Testifying to the faithfulness of God. Full of gratitude. Full of adoration. The dying Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on his staff. It's a beautiful death, isn't it? I, I hope I can die that way sometime. I bet you do too. The details of our death are beyond our control, aren't they? But God remains the same. The God of Jacob is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved, And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. We're not in control of the details of our death, but you live in the faith of that marvelous grace revealed in Christ, and you will die in faith also. Amen. Let us turn now to sing together number 89, stanzas 1, 3, and 6 of number 89.